Good morning, Tabernacle. I am so glad that you joined us. Is everybody doing well? Yes, you're doing well. Good. Uh, So am I. Hello, Manistee. Uh, Welcome. And those of you watching online, thanks for uh, checking us out, taking the time, making a choice to be here. Did you know you made a choice to be here? All right. Give yourself applause. Let's do it. There you go. Good job. Well done. Well done. Uh, This is the sermon where everybody gets a medal. (laughs) Not really. Uh, We're in... uh, 2 Samuel uh, chapter 19, uh, and it's not going to be on the screen today. I'm going to tell uh, a portion of the story. There, there's three basic parts to it, um, and it is profound, and it slapped me really hard right in the face uh, as I was studying this week, because this is about me, um, and maybe you can join in as, as I share some about myself and some about uh, King David and some of his compatriots. Uh, before we get there, do you guys know that feelings are real? Feelings are real. Feelings are real. And you've heard the saying, um, you know, it's not wrong how you feel, correct? Have you heard that? Wow. You guys are very illiterate. Very <laughs> Okay, so that, that's a basic saying. So that, what, what that means in context is, you know, an event, a situation happens, and you have feelings that come up. Those initial feelings aren't wrong. Uh, but we do sometimes have control over that. You know how I know that we have control over our feelings is I live in uh, a very white part of the world uh, as far as race goes. And uh, we're northern Michigan people. And we choose not to show feelings because we have control, right? We're not very demonstrative about our feelings, are we? So here's the, you know, like the best music you've ever heard, and this is how we respond, right? (laughs) That's our demonstrative feelings that we share. Now, you know, there's a whole bunch of cultural reasons and all that, and I'm not going to, you know, shame us about uh, our lack of uh, emoting those feelings. Uh, we're very comfortable with that uh, bit of the world where we keep them under check. Have you been with someone who has been like emotionally wrecked and distraught and maybe they've lost a loved one, maybe there's uh, you, you know, a variety of circumstances, maybe business, something, and they're very tearful and we feel very uncomfortable with that, don't we? Don't we? So, so we do. We feel uncomfortable with that. And, you know, in northern Michigan, you know, even the physical feelings that we have sometimes are very subdued. I, you know, it'll be minus three, uh, which is coming uh, in, in the near future. And it'll be windy and maybe, you know, usually at three there's not much flurry activity. It's too cold. Even the snow stays home. And, you know, I'll see a friend and it's like, hey, how you doing? Oh, good, good. Hey, it's kind of chilly today, right? And they're like, yeah. Not bad, you know. Seen worse, and and that's our. And I'm like, you're an idiot. It's three degrees. If we stay out here and talk much longer, we're both dead men. Have some feelings. So did I rub that in enough so that we struggle with feelings sometimes? Uh, internally, we don't struggle. Uh, the feelings happen, and we really don't have a lot of control over that. Uh, there seems to be. A few feelings that we talk about regularly, happy, mad, sad, glad, that's the list. And, and there's, a, there's a lot more descriptive words, but happy, mad, sad, glad is kind of where we go. 
But we have a demonstration in this story today of emotions that were real and the consequences of those emotions. So this is, this is the setup, is there's been civil war in the nation of Israel. And there's been the, the king, David, who's uh, older now and has been leading for a long time. And there's his son, Absalom, who is incredibly handsome, wonderful, articulate, go-getter guy with a bright personality. And he makes a decision that he needs to lead. And so this internal strife ends up having a civil war where there's actual weapons drawn and killing happening over who's going to be in charge. And there's David's side and there's Absalom's side. And the battle goes. And Absalom is killed. He's dead. And the civil war is over. And David is now in mourning. He's devastated at the loss of his son. And it seems kind of appropriate as we're first reading this, and he's lamenting out loud. I mean, David wrote a bunch of the Psalms, and, you know, we see his range of emotion is very big, but, you know, this is a live moment, and he's like, Absalom, Absalom, oh, my son, Absalom, if only I could have died in your place, and he's wrecked. He's just wrecked, and he's in tears, and most of us think that's pretty appropriate. And it is to a point, but this has been going on for a period of time. Now, what happens when you have a war and your side wins? There's usually a pretty vast celebration that happens, right? I mean, just look at some old newsreels of downtown New York City when World War II was over and we won. We're demonstrative people then. And it's a big deal. Even tragic things like 9-11, the, the outpouring of emotions are very demonstrative. And so that's what should be happening is this celebration. And David has put himself in a position where I'm not saying he's overacting, but he's misusing his emotions at this point. And there's a reason for that. It's because he forgot about God. He forgot about God in the midst of his sorrow, which is interesting to me because it seems like pain in our lives brings about three things, usually not initially, but after a little while. So a lot of pain in our life can, can bring hope, and it can show us love, and it can show us God. In my life, the tragedies that I've been involved with, whether self-induced or just circumstance, God seems to be shouting more at me. I'm here, I'm here. We're all tugged by these emotions. But David's, the way he's demonstrating his loss is that there is no hope from now on. And it's to the point where his wailing and his moaning is so loud that all of the people who fought for him, for Israel, for God, were ashamed to come into the city. This is they were walking with their heads down like a thief. They didn't know how to respond because David's mourning is so palpable. So this isn't about whether mourning is appropriate. It is. It's about the level 
in the depth that it went to. So all of these men who had fought risked their lives. Some of them died. They risked losing all of their kin who would have been sold into slavery. Uh, They risked losing all of their wealth and their property and their status in society and even up to their life. That's what they risked for David. And he is so devastated that they feel ashamed to even celebrate their victory. So David has this uh, person in his life that comes up and he basically says, you know, he calls him out. Uh, His name is Joab and he's a general and he's an interesting character. I still haven't figured him all the way out yet. Uh, I probably won't because he's not that important to me, but uh, he's an interesting character. And he comes, and as he's talking to David, the basic thing that he's telling him is, feelings are important, but they should never master us. should never master us. Our feelings are important. Our feelings are a gift from God. It's kind of like uh, in a sinful world, being able to feel pain if you put your finger in too hot of water. It warns us. It's actually a blessing so that we don't hurt ourselves. And the same with the emotions that we have. It can help clear our and cleanse our soul. But they should never master us. Our feelings should never master us. Now, in today's world, it's really weird because we have all these people walking around about, you know, complaining, and it's oversaturated in the media about, you know, microaggressions and aggressions and, you know, all of these feelings that I have, and my feelings are the most important thing, and it's wrong. That's a terrible way to live. It's a horrible way to live. And I pity the people who choose to live that way because they're missing out on the essence of life. So aside from them, (coughs) is there times that emotions might rule you? Just a question to ponder for a minute. Is there a time when the emotions, the feelings that we have, uh, rule you, become our master? You know, I will use an easy analogy, sports. How many of you have a team, I don't care what it is, that you might kind of like? You know, and sometimes, isn't it weird? It's like, I'm watching a game that I don't even know who the players are. Uh, Even like, I can watch European soccer and I don't even know what's going on. And I'll choose a side. And it's usually because that guy has cool hair and runs really fast. I don't know. But I can find my emotions getting released in that game. You know, and so we read about these tragedies that happen where parents at a game, maybe a high school game or whatever, lose control, and they lose control because there was a bad call. And their emotions rule them to the point where they make an ass out of themselves in public and partially ruin their own reputation. Is that being controlled? Yes, it is. So I think it goes further than that because some people will do that out loud. And I almost have an appreciation for those who have the courage to do it out loud. Some of them do it out loud because they have no self-control. And, and I'm sorry about that. But the other one is, is the internal one where the feelings are there. So Jesus tells us that even if you've thought it, you've committed it. How many of you have a political side? And I don't, this isn't about which one is right or wrong. How many of you read news or listen to stories? And how many of you get upset? (laughs) There's a lot more on the upset part. Thanks for being truthful. And we get up, some of them are, are, are just ludicrous out there, regardless of what side you're on, it doesn't matter. 
And what does our feeling start to say about the other side? Has there ever been sin in those thoughts? Yes, there has. And it can be kind of ruthless. Now, that's part of it is human nature. I get that. Uh, and, and part of us wants this thing called justice, right? So, you know, my emotions can run deep. Uh, but there's a whole lot of sports that I don't watch anymore because I was taught to watch sports inappropriately. Uh, and, and by no intent or malice, but if there was too much emphasis put on winning. And uh, so I've, I've eliminated most of that. I, I watch highlights is, is what I watch because I, I have an appreciation for athletes, of which I'm not one, but I have an appreciation. But I had to back off because my emotions got too intense. And began to master me. Some simple, shut it off. I actually have the power to do that. But I never looked at it as sin before this week. I mean, I, I, I knew parts of it, but I never looked at the whole general thing as sin because I want justice. Now, justice for me is... Uh, I've, you know, I'm in a public position, so, so stones can get thrown my way, and they really don't bother me all that much anymore. The only time a stone really hurts is when it comes from behind, you know, and smacks you that I didn't see it coming. But the ones that I can see coming, if I'm not quick enough to dodge, that's kind of my fault. But when it's against somebody else that I love, game on. You know, you start saying mean things about uh, our staff, and I'm not going to be all that logical at that moment. I might be later. When you say something about my kids, it's getting intense. You say something about my wife, I'm going to murder you. <laughs> right? That's just how it goes. And some of that is the initial feeling, but do you realize that I actually have control over that? Do you know that you have control over your feelings? Do you know David had control over his too? Now, I've talked to a lot of people about this, and here's the way. So, so some guys have uh, an ability to get angry. Is there any guy in here that has the ability to get angry? Oh, there were a few hands. Yeah, I, I'm one of them, okay? And a situation happens, and now I'm angry, right? And I'll come in. Here comes Tim as the counselor guy going, you know what? That's a choice. And they're like, no, it's not. I have no, I, it's not. And I'll say, does it feel like? trying to swallow a tennis ball. They're like, yeah. That's, you know, to not be angry is like trying to swallow a tennis ball. Can anybody here swallow a tennis ball? No, but you all can. If you cut it into really tiny little pieces. You can eat, uh, don't eat tennis balls. Nobody eat tennis balls. <laughs> Disclaimer, at home, do not eat tennis balls. It's a bad thing. But we can, there is a control over it. I know the feeling that's first there, but we are not mastered by our feelings. We're not. We're, we're designed differently than that. Aren't you glad God isn't mastered by his feelings? How many times does he say, he's angry? A fair amount. But he restrains. He tells us that. So we need to keep going. So Joab comes in and calls David out says, you got to stop this. If you keep this up, this is what's going to happen. This is all paraphrasing. If, if you keep doing this, everything that we've built for God 
Everything that God's built in Israel is going to fall apart. You're shaming all of the men and women and families who fought for you. And you're basically having a pity party that's inappropriate. I know you lost a son, and I know that hurts. You have responsibilities. So Joab calls him out, and then this thing happens, this unbelievable thing happens. I don't know if you've ever been called out. I have a lot, and I hate it because I'm prideful. He gets called out, and this is what happens. The king returns. David, little K, returns. He suddenly comes to himself, and I don't know what went on in his head, but I I wonder if for a minute he started thinking about all the blessings God's given him up to this point in his life. And if you've been staying with us through 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, there's been a lot, hasn't there? A lot of blessings. Now, there's been mistakes, and he's been called out, and he's, had a, he's got to pay prices for that. The last few sermons demonstrate some of that for us. But he's been given so much, and he's also been forgiven so much. And the part of him that returns is the man after God's own heart. He doesn't come in angry. He doesn't come in with tears and sobbing so much that he can't even speak. He doesn't come in with huge, joyous celebration. He comes in appropriately. The king returns. There's sometimes where you're the king or you're the queen and you're called to return. How do you respond when you're called to return? Well, it's beautiful because David shows us two things. When he comes back, he sits at the gate of the city. And this is very significant. The, there's there's a, a, a little bit of honor in sitting at the gate. That's where the wise and the elderly would sit, and they would have conversations and debate. And that's where the news came from. That was the news outlet. And he came and he sat there. And he didn't build a taller chair, and he didn't go into the palace and sit on the throne. He was humble because he knows that humility rules. If you've ever been in a situation where there's, where there's someone who has had uh, maybe a falling or, or, or something disgraceful in their life, and they come, and you, you're feeling frustrated with this person, and they come to you with humility, it rules the land. It changes the format. It changes everything. And David comes and sits humbly and begins to answer questions. And he begins to talk and he begins to encourage. And through the course of this encouragement, as, as, as things are going, people begin to come to him. And here's a really important part. So David has all power. He's got complete authority. Nobody's going to question him on his authority. And some of the people who fought for the other side come, and they seek him out at the gate. Now, they fought for the other side, so that's a traitorous act, and it deserves death. It's what it deserves, yet they still came. Something compelled them to come. Maybe they had no other choice but to throw themselves on the mercy of David, and they come and and one comes and, and begins to talk about he was wrong. 
And he bows and puts his head to the ground and basically says, I don't deserve anything. I was wrong. I was wrong. And in humility, remember, humility rules. David does something profound. He forgives. He forgives and forgiveness heals. So he came with his humility back. He was called out. He acted appropriately. He decided not to let his emotions rule him anymore. And now here he's humbly sitting and somebody comes before him that he has every right to have either executed, exiled, sold into slavery, whatever the judgment would have been. And he forgives him. And he says, who am I to put judgment on you? Who am I? Well, you're the king, but that's not what he is right now. He's a humble man after God's own heart. Who am I? He's basically saying, look at the wrong I've done in my life, and I've been forgiven. How could I possibly not forgive you? And then there's somebody who comes from, and, and Mephibosheth is his name, and that was uh, um, Jonathan's son who had lame feet. And I don't know if you remember that part of the story, but David ends up reaching out at one point and taking care of him because he had promised Jonathan long ago that he would take care of Mephibosheth. And uh, Mephibosheth, through the course of this, was actually loyal to David, but one of his compatriots sold him down the river. And all of the stories had been that he had betrayed David, even though he didn't. And he came before, and, and, and he bowed down before, and, and he said, I don't deserve anything. You've given me so much. I want you to know that I'm for you and I always have been. But whatever the consequences, I've received so many blessings, I'll take your judgment. And David forgives. We're beginning to see healing happening in a nation. The soldiers are now coming in and their shoulders are up. And they're beginning to feel the sense of healthy pride in who they are and who they follow. And they're feeling loved and appreciated, and they're feeling forgiven and encouraged. And it's all because of the king who returned humbly with a forgiving heart. Now, what does that have to do with us? Everything. I'm going to speak to the men in the room. And this is not, this is not sexist. This is real. You carry a huge amount of power with who you are. You have power. You're not a king, but you have authority. And it's, it's been granted and given rightly or not. And sometimes we abuse that. I can often say, if you really want to know a man's heart, watch his wife for a while. Because the influence that the man can have on his wife is absolutely profound. That's not to say women are weak or can't or anything. I'm talking about men who are men after God's own heart. Their wife is going to be lifted up and beautiful, period. There's going to be something amazing that happens. And that's done not out of authority and power. It's out of humility and a true sense of justice, which always involves forgiveness. How are you with your kids? Have your kids made a mistake? Yeah, darn right. They're kids. That's what their job is. 
Kids are supposed to make mistakes. It's like kids learning to walk. I mean, I mean, just think about this in context of as your kids grow up, they're always learning to walk in a new phase. And when they began to walk, we never expected, we did not punish them because they f- tripped and fell. We might have laughed because some of them were funny when they fall because they didn't get hurt. But it's like, oh, I mean, is there anything more adorable than when a kid's learning how to walk? Right? Puppies, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> but, but, you know, but, but we're not frustrated. But then they get older and suddenly they're like, we're trying to get our own identity out of our kids. And, you know, as a dad, you've got all this power in the world. And your kid might make a dumb mistake. And you're going to consider it a catastrophe. It's not. It's not a catastrophe. It just happens. And they're trying to learn how to walk as now an adolescent and as soon as a young adult and then as an adult. And they're going to fall. Do you know what? You still fall. So do I. I was heading off my deck a few weeks ago and and I, I don't know what happened to my brain, but suddenly the steps weren't where they were supposed to be. <laughs> and the next thing I know, I'm watching my iPad slide across the deck, and I hurt myself. And my wife didn't get angry with me. So we're going to make mistakes, so we have all this power, and that power comes from being like Jesus, humble and forgiving. So important. This is how we... As Christians change the world. Now, caveat, by the world, I don't mean welfare systems, war, gender issues, uh, poverty. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about changing the world you actually live in. The one with the people that are in your realm. As if we start to behave as David showed us how to, we're going to change the world. Our world. And that has a ripple effect that's substantially bigger than you think it is. Substantially. See, what I'm telling you is truth. You know, there's the whole moral relativism that is prominent today, and that's from the pit of hell. It's a lie. It's wrong. It's incorrect. It's false. It's harmful. It's very pharisaical in the worst of the term. This is actual truth. And this truth, you know it's truth because it restores. It restores in beautiful ways. So one of the things I love out of Scripture is parables. Um, Excuse me. I have uh, an issue with uh, certain types of reading. And the dyslexia stuff comes in and it gets kind of hard to read some things, but there's certain types of narratives out there that are written that my brain just attaches to, and one of them is stories. And, and, And stories are the way I teach and what I love the most. And there's these stories that Jesus told while he was traveling called parables. And a parable is a story that means something. It's actually in context, but it has a vast spiritual meaning behind it, right? And for whatever reason, I connected with those and and, and so parables are my favorite, and they don't confuse me for some reason. Uh, and I could take a test on it and actually pass. Isn't that cool? Uh, it's one of the few things I get A's in. So I love parables, and I like to play to my strength. And I've, I've had a favorite parable for a long time. And this week, this parable smacked me hard because I realized how much of it is me in the position I always thought I wasn't. 
So let me share this parable with you. This is out of uh, Matthew 18, verses 23 through 35. Now remember, it's a, it's a story, and it has a very significant meaning. And the story is about being forgiven and forgiving others. And it's at the crux of all that Christianity stands for. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts with his servants. This is Jesus' teaching. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Okay, how much is that? A lot more than you have. How's that? And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and a payment be made. Now, this is what was going to happen is the debt was super huge. And this manager guy, he says, you know what? This is a dead industry. Let's cut our losses, sell everybody off, sell all of his stuff. Just, just get rid of it. And whatever we get, we'll put in there and we're just going to erase that debt then. That's what's going to happen. Now, this guy knew coming in that he couldn't pay. He had borrowed more than he should. This analogy is about sin. It's about the sin that we have. That's what this is pointing to. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now think about that. So let's say I'm the guy with all the smarts and the money and you came to me and it's like, I can't pay, I can't pay, I can't pay. And it's like, you know what? Since you begged, since you asked, and, and, and begging, that was the wrong. Since, since you got humble and asked for assistance, I'm going to give it to you. In fact, I'm not going to give you more time. I'm erasing your debt. You no, no longer have a mortgage, car payments, student loan debts. Everything is done. Go start over. Thanks for being part of this crew. That's what happened to this guy. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, let's say 50 bucks. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. Gosh, we just heard that in a sentence before. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay that debt. Now, think about the illogic implications there. How is he going to pay his debt if he's in prison? How long is this guy in prison for? He's, from, from now on, from now on, this guy's in prison. He's sitting in a cell, and the guy's waiting for him to pay his debt. And when he fills that, he'll get out. It's never happening. That's being incredibly ruthless. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then the master summoned him and said, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, only because you asked. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailer until he should pay all of his debt. This is what Jesus says. This is pretty key. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. 
Jesus is on the cross as I have had mercy on you. There's a cross next to him and another one, and one mocks him, and the other one says, give me more time. And Jesus says, you got it. It's all it took. No magic prayer, no list of good deeds. He says, truly, this is the Son of God. Remember me. That's all the guy did. Jesus, at that moment, forgave all of his debt, all of his sin was gone. Now, we've had mercy. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're the first person in the story. I'm the first person in the story. We have a massive debt. And we go before the king of kings, and this debt is sin because all of us are flawed and fall short. And, you know, it isn't just big sins. It's the things we think and, you know, all the craziness of our brain. And, you know, those, there can be sins in those as well. And yet we like to categorize them, you know, in this, the list of the big sins, and then the rest really don't count. But they all count, and so the debt is amazingly huge. And we go before, and it's like, I can't pay this debt. I sinned, and Jesus goes, that's enough right there, done. So we've been given this gift. It's huge. It's unbelievable. And this is the part that killed me because this is the part where I can be like the first servant, walking away from it. Somebody's lightly sinned against me, lightly, because they have a different political view. Because they're a different race. Because they didn't appreciate me as much as they should. And I begin to choke them out and want to send them to debtor's prison from now on. See, David shows us what happens when people came to him and asked for forgiveness. He gave it carte blanche and, and welcomed them back. Because David had been forgiven much and he had been blessed richly. So have I. More than I'll ever deserve. And yet, I have this human, sinful, pride-filled portion of me that thinks I'm a pretty big deal. And sometimes, sometimes I want to choke out the one who owes me virtually nothing. We need to confess that. And we need to learn the lesson that we have a choice because part of it will be, no, that person really wronged me, and my feelings are telling me that I should choke them. That's how my feelings are, because I'm a guy all about justice until it comes to me, but I'm a guy all about justice, and so this is righteous, and it's not. It's sin. So if someone comes before you, it says, brothers, if one of you is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, go restore him gently. Go restore this person, like Joab helped restore David. And then David made a choice because he was not mastered by his feelings. He was mastered by the love and the humbleness and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. That's the gift we've received. If we can begin to emulate that, to act that way with those around us in our sections, I promise you, we'll change the world promise you, you'll change your world. There's something about 
the feeling when we ask for forgiveness and receive it, or when it's asked of us and we give it, and it's like a wellness that happens in our soul. So the band's going to come out. They're going to lead us in a really gorgeous song. And I want you to just worship through this song. If you want to sing, sing. If you want to stand, stand. That's fine. But the band's going to come out. And with the gift that they have, which is one of many that they have, they're going to use their voices and their instruments, and they're going to lead us in this worship to the God who forgave us everything. And that's the beginning of things being well with our soul. But before we leave, I'm going to ask if you just bow your heads for a second, and I want you to think about a time that you've been forgiven, and how did it feel? How did it feel? And there's something that's just like letting all of the pressure out that doesn't belong. Just goes, and we breathe, and we can breathe whole again. And now I want you to think about the person who's wronged you really hard. What would it be like if that pressure was gone because you chose to be like Jesus and to offer forgiveness? Not perfect forgiveness. We're not Jesus. Remember that but to the best of our ability to be like Jesus. And there's going to be another release. And it's going to begin to feel a little bit more well. I promise you. I pray for encouragement from God for you to receive and to give. To receive and to give forgiveness more than is probably even necessary. Receive and give. May God bless you. May he bless your soul. Amen.